Today, we have one of the pioneers of the European tech ecosystem on to discuss how the European early-stage VC landscape has changed and how their fund, Passion Capital, has unlocked access to investors with their latest fundraise. Eileen Burbage has built a reputation as the go-to VC for seed-stage companies in the UK and Europe, and for good reason. Her aptly named fund, Passion Capital, has built a name for itself as one of the top early-stage funds in the UK because of her passion for rolling up her sleeves much like she did in the early days as an operator at Skype, Apple, Yahoo, and Sun Microsystems. I won't forget when we met last year at her office. She had just stepped out of nonstop meetings with one of her growth stage companies, where she was helping them figure out critical team and talent questions. Not every seed stage VC has the ability to stay involved as companies grow, nor does this type of work. But that's what separates passion from the pack. Eileen is just as much at home in her office, which doubles as a co-working space for passion portfolio companies, as she is on 10 Downing Street, where she's been named the UK Treasury's Special Envoy for Fintech, has been appointed by the Chancellor as the Chair of Tech Nation, and was awarded an MBE in the 2015 Queen's Birthday Honours for her services to businesses. So maybe it's no surprise why she's been described as the Queen of British VC by Fortune magazine. She certainly backed many of the British startup royalty at early stage, being a seed investor in Monzo Bank, where she still serves on the board, Tide Bank, Go Cardless, Digital Shadows, Marshmallow, Butternut Box, and many others. Eileen has also had an illustrious career as an operator, working for Apple, Yahoo, and Sun Microsystems in the early days of the internet before moving to London in 2004 to become one of Skype's earliest employees and head of product. She then founded Passion in 2011 as one of the first seed funds in London, serving a critical market need for the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the UK. She's now trailblazing once again by being one of the first funds to open up their LP base to the crowd, where they've partnered with seeders to allow individuals to invest into Passion's latest fund. She's also an independent non-executive board director at Dixon's Carphone, a 10 billion pound revenue electrical and telecoms retailer, and on the transformation and innovation advisory board at Unicredit. Eileen and I had a fascinating conversation about all things VC, about opening up access to the asset class to individual investors, and what it means for the future of venture capital. Thanks for coming on the show today, Eileen. Eileen, welcome to the All Coast Mainstream Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great. Great to have you on. How's everything across the pond? It's actually sunny today in London, so all good. 10 out of 10. <laughs> wow. People must be really, really happy. It's, uh, those days in London are special. Absolutely. Very, very happy. And as sort of lockdown starts lifting and people can go to pubs, it's like a whole new world. <laughs> that's, uh, I imagine that's going to be qu- quite, a, quite a fun time. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a fun weekend. And it's, I think the next few weeks are just going to continue to be uh, a celebration here. So fingers crossed that we don't get into a third wave. That's great. Well, those, uh, yeah, those sunny days in London are, are, are never things that you take for, for granted. So, but you actually came over from the U S you, you born in the U S lived in the U S and then have spent a lar- large portion of your adult life in Europe. So tell us kind of how you, how, how you came to being a core piece of the startup ecosystem in, in the UK and Europe really w- way back when. Sure, of course. Well, that's really a flattering way to characterize it. I'm not sure I'm that core, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun and a huge privilege. So as you say, I was born and raised in the States. I grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, I went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, got the computer science degree in the early 90s, mostly because I was forced by my parents. So I've got them to thank for that. But um, 
came out in the early 90s with a CS degree and uh, worked for a telecoms company originally, but they moved me to the Bay Area uh, before I sort of thought of it as Silicon Valley or before much of that was happening. And so I was in the, the Bay Area for uh, 10 years. And so most of the dot-com boom and actually a good couple of years of the bust, which I always say is far more instructive than the actual <laughs> boom time. Um, so yeah, I was there in the Bay Area from 94 until 2004. Um, I worked for Sun Microsystems. I was working on JavaSoft. I worked at a company that went public in 99. Um, I worked for Apple. I worked for an incubator. I kind of did the Bay Area thing and I absolutely loved it and thought I was there for good, for life. Sort of somebody who grows up in the Chicago area, you know, getting to the Bay Area with the climate and the topology and just the range of outdoor activities. You think, why would you ever live anywhere else? <laughs> um, so I was I was sold. I was hooked. Um, I still have a TIC in San Francisco because I never sold it, thinking I was going to go back. Um, and I thought in 2004 that it would be great to have a year or two of international experience just to get the sense of, you know, other markets outside of the U.S., um, and how that might help me in the Bay Area. So it was always meant to be a bit of a sort of a sidebar and I was going to come back. And that was 17 years ago. So in 2004, I came over to work for Skype. Super early days. There were five of us in London. Um, I remember we were looking at broadband penetration rates across different countries in the world, trying to figure out where we were going to launch. Uh, we were trying to convince people to call it Skype and not go with Skype-y, which people <laughs> seem to have that tendency to do because we had that trailing E. Um, and yeah, I was the sort of first product person at the company and stayed at Skype for about a year and a half until it was sold to eBay. Um, and then what happened was, you know, as often happens, personal reasons. Uh, I started a family. I now have four dual national sort of British and American um, offspring <laughs> that I've contributed to population growth. Um, and also even now a British stepdaughter. So it's family that's kept me here. And like I said, I still have that TIC in San Francisco if anyone is interested. Um, <laughs> but since, since I've planted roots here in London, I think I'm here for good. Um, and what happened after Skype, I, I kind of just fell into investing, if I'm honest. As, as mentioned, what I did in the Bay Area and of course what I was doing in Skype was always sort of operational roles really happy being at tech companies. Um, but when I went on my first maternity leave, the Skype founding engineers had 5% of the company when it was sold to eBay. So they set up a sort of a private angel or super angel kind of fund, 50 million euro. Uh, they'd not invested before. And they just originally just started asking me to kind of meet with founders that might come through London, uh, help them with some due diligence, although we didn't even know it was called that then, and just kind of give my sense about, you know, business plans, product roadmaps and the like. And over the course of about a year and a half, I just started working with them on a lot of their deals and ended up leading four deals uh, or investments that they made in London. So that was 2006, 2007. And it was, uh, you know, really fantastic to do that. And actually that first cohort of four London-based investments were phenomenal. Um, so I should have which, actually which had bigger they? ambitions. Well, one of them was Mendeley, which yep. ended up being sold uh, to Reed Elsevier Nexus. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, Treatwell, which yep. was actually uh, acquired by Rakuten. Another one was Kindo, which was acquired by MyHeritage, which just exited. And then the fourth one was Kublax, which was meant to be the UK-based mint.com. So that one wasn't a success, but I think three out of four, a uh, pretty good hit rate, and I didn't even appreciate it at the time. <laughs> um, but fantastic experience, and the idea was, you know, I remember thinking, I love what I do. Once I started learning the vocabulary and realizing that we're basically, you know, pretending to be VCs, that I'm helping with due diligence. Uh, you know, I was taking board seats. We were talking about follow-on rounds. We were, we were kind of going through all the motions. And I, 
I had a sort of an option, I guess, to move to Estonia to do it with those guys full time, but that wasn't really in the cards. And so um, it just sort of became, you know, the ideal would be, why don't I try and do this here in London? And, you know, met my two partners through investing in the London ecosystem. They were angel investors at the time um, and really kind of had just the same idea, which is everything that's happening in the US, and this is now 2009, is really what we need to bring to Europe, which is founder friendliness. Sounds so dead obvious now, I know, but wasn't necessarily a a sort of a a selling proposition or a thing here in Europe. You had really big multi-stage funds uh, you know, that had obviously invested in the likes of Skype or lastminute.com, Last.fm, which was sold to CBS, but not anything specializing in seed or early stage, not really leading with this, you know, notion or the sort of tenets of being founder friendly, uh, not really working with entrepreneurs. So, you know, London, Michael, so you'll know all the firms at the time were based in Mayfair, <laughs> basically the most extensive real estate in London, you know, next to Knightsbridge and all these really, really posh offices. Nobody was really, um, setting up house next to where the entrepreneurs were being based near their offices. And so in 2009, we first actually went about setting up a co-working space, which again, sounds so cliche and obvious now, but this is well before we work, obviously, but even before Google campus type setups, you know, before tech hub, which was a big one in London as well, we set up a co-working space first on, you know, 1500 square feet, then it was 5,000 square feet. And then over time we ended up with three floors in a building where we actually just selfishly didn't want to be based in a very small office where three of us sat, you know, in a room looking at each other. We wanted to kind of feed off of the dynamic and the vibrancy of some teams that we'd invested in. Um, but that was the first co-working space in London in 2009. And then we went about sort of raising a fund. And in 2011, we raised the first passion fund or started investing out of the first passion fund, which was just a modest sort of $50 million at the time. So did you end up with this co-working space? Have you ended up either birthing companies or helping create companies in your co-working space? It was White Bear Yard, right? That's right. It was called White Bear Yard. And yes, we did. So, um, you know, one of the best sort of uh, origin stories of, I think, a London startup is TransferWise, now known as Wise, um, was started in our space, sat actually right behind a desk. So obviously I knew Tavit and was a good friend of his from our days of working together at Skype. Uh, passion, we didn't invest. We often get credited for it. We get asked if we want to sell secondary all the time, but we don't actually hold shares. And it's one of the most, you know, it's the saddest story that we have, but it's fantastic for the ecosystem. It was birthed in our office. And I say the reason we probably didn't do it is we saw it too early in that, you know, we gave feedback on a couple of points. Um, you know, I don't know if the, the founders talk about this ever, but their original, the very first kind of idea was they were going to go out and do transfers for a pound each. Um, and I remember Robert and Stefan, our, you know, my partners who actually saw the deal because I recused myself because he was such a good friend that we decided I wouldn't actually be part of the pitch. They sort of gave a point of feedback, which was, you know what, if you change from a pound, um, a transfer to 1% or something that's more percentage based or volume based. And if you Tavit are going to be full time, we will invest. But at the time, neither of those conditions existed and we passed. And then, obviously, lesson learned, we missed it when, obviously, both of those things ended up coming uh, to pass. So TransferWise was born in our office. Um, we also you know, had Monzo Bank, which was born in our office. Um, we had Go Cardless, which came out of Y Combinator and then needed an office in London. And so we were their first office um, or desks even before we invested. So, yeah, we've had some fantastic, um, you know, just opportunities and experiences with teams that have really made the office space a fantastic, um, I guess, journey even more so than the fund. Yeah. I mean, in some senses, I mean, it was just such a 
core piece of connective tissue for the ecosystem. And I remember I, I was in the UK in 2009, 2010, and, and I remember Passion's name and White Bear Yard. It was like, this was like the fun that you want to know and, and, and know that, that they're kind of there in the ecosystem. Cause it was like Silicon milk roundabout I believe was like, like the, the, like that was where, like that was yeah. where people were thinking about like the ecosystem being, and you, you were really in the center of that. So what was that like to be kind of part of that ecosystem and how much do you, do you feel that you were bringing kind of some of your experiences from what you saw in the Bay in internet 1.0 to bear in the UK, which was really kind of going through its first wave, maybe a few years behind what, what the U S was like. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was phenomenal and it was so much fun. And you're right. I think that the London ecosystem was probably at least five years behind, uh, the Bay area, maybe fewer years behind New York. So I used to sort of think it was pretty close to kind of the East Coast, but definitely behind the Bay Area. I mean, when I joined Skype, for example, in 2004, and we tried to hire product managers, it was ridiculous. It wasn't a job title that existed in London. I was getting, you know, resumes uh, from headhunters of people who like were the product manager for bundling a USB stick with a T-Mobile phone (laughs) in a T-Mobile store. And they didn't understand the concept of software product management at all. So London was behind certainly the Bay Area. I don't know if I necessarily brought many lessons learned or experiences, but I think the teams that ended up being based in the office were the ones that were invaluable. So as you say, I mean, we really had some really fantastic times. We had We were the first office for BuzzFeed when they launched in Europe and they set up a desk, the first office for Stripe when it was outside of the US, the first office for Twilio when it set up in London and and General Assembly as well. So we had, you know, a lot of people that had come from the Bay Area or from New York that were bringing, you know, I think American ambition and levels of, um, you know, aspiration and ways of working, sort of lean startup methodology, these things, you know, talking about doing agile development methods that were still new to the London ecosystem. I think them being in the office and imparting their sort of wisdom or just being something to observe and witness for our other teams was really just phenomenal. Absolutely outstanding. I, I know I know you're incredibly humble about this, but but what do you think this did for kind of the second wave of UK or European entrepreneurship in terms of like do you did many of these uh founders that kind of 1.0 companies have gone on to either found other companies. There's, you know, there's the Monzo mafia, there's the transfer wise wise mafia. And then there are a number of VCs who've probably come out of this as well. So like, do you think it was in many respects, like a lot of the people who you've seen either work in or out of your, your office in white bear and all the kind of companies that were formed, have you kind of seen them go on to do other things in the tech ecosystem? Yeah, I think we're definitely lucky that we got to witness a lot of people sort of doing the the first version of their career and then, you know, doing a second or uh, either founding another business or then, you know, switching to being an investor or vice versa. It's been it's been really lucky to see that. And I think I have to give credit to uh, Go Cardless, actually. The Monzo Mafia probably starts back at Go Cardless because, you know, the Monzo founder and CEO came from Go Cardless as one of those um, co-founders. And so everything has spawned from Go Cardless. But yeah, it just depends on how far back you want to go. And it's been phenomenal. It's been great to see. And I think we're finally at a point now where Europe or the UK and London for sure has as many previous, you know, former founders and operators, angel investing, as when, you know, what we take for granted in the US and what I saw, you know, certainly in the 2000s in, in the Bay Area, where you'd have people, you know, who went through the Google IPO or the Yahoo IPO or Inc. to me, you know, companies that don't even exist now. But those are people that then promptly angel invested in their friends and in former colleagues. We really didn't have that in London for a long time. It was concentrated with too few people. 
And I think now we're finally at that point, like you say, people that were early employees at Wise or TransferWise, you know, Monzo, Go Cardless, um, it's fantastic. And I, I, we love to see it. Absolutely well, love to see it. I, I think you're hitting on a theme that is really important in the startup community writ large, but also with something that you recently did, which is community. So you at Passion did something very innovative, very different and interesting, which is very relevant to the alt space, which is you recently opened up your fund, Fund 3. And, and mind you, for, for those who don't know uh, or are, are super familiar with Passion, they, they are one of the best, if not the best seed fund in in the UK ecosystem in terms of investing in the likes of Monzo and Tide and, and a number of other top UK and European businesses. So for a high quality seed fund to be opened up to a broader group of investors is A, not something we've seen often and B, an incredible uh, incredible privilege for those investors who now have the ability to invest alongside really some of the best institutional investors in the ecosystem. So walk us through what this was, this crowd raise that you did with Cedars, how it all worked and how it came about. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun and I should write it all down, but I'm glad we're going to sort of <laughs> save this. This podcast will help because it'll preserve it in posterity. I mean, it was it's a really interesting way that's come about. And I think it was really, a, a we were fortunate to be sort of in the right place, right time and have, I guess, the right circumstances to try this. It really was an experiment and we didn't know how it was going to go. But, uh, but you know, my position was that I thought we had so little to lose. That wasn't necessarily the, the everybody's uh, view uh, a passion, but I think that it now in hindsight, everyone's glad we did it. What happened was we actually, you know, as, as many funds do, we had two closings. So we had the first closing in August, 2019 um, of 35 million pounds. And in order to get to that nice tidy number of 35 million pounds, even, you know, we were 1 million and 15,000 pounds short. Um, and so we did what I think a lot of other fund managers do, but as GPs, we warehoused, you know, that 1 million, 15,000 at knowing, of course, that we're going to have a second closing. And so we're going to continue fundraising and we will shift that warehouse portion as we um, build our second close. And so what happened then was though coronavirus, right? Yeah, less than six months later, and I was probably too sensitive to this, but I just thought it was really kind of just gauche to fundraise. Um, certainly in Q2, when it all started happening and we started seeing capital flows drying up, just felt like it seemed like an inappropriate time to go to institutional LPs or to, you know, even people that we'd had conversations with or that we were in a process with. Everyone was, you know, taking stock of what their their strategy was going to be for 2020. And it just seemed unrealistic to try and really pitch hard. Um, and maybe that actually is a reflection of, um, I don't know, my hunger or lack of hunger, or maybe I should have hustled more. But we therefore didn't really go out and fundraise, but we had another 10 million pound commitment that was already uh, committed by the British Business Bank, who's our cornerstone. So we decided to just take that and do our second close. But that means we didn't really go um, build a book, nor did we move much, uh, or all of the warehousing. We moved actually more than 600,000 pounds worth, but we ended up with about 350 left from the warehouse portion. And this, of course, is outside of our GP commit, which is 2.8%. So we weren't talking about bringing that down at all. This is literally what we warehouse to get to an even 35 million number for that first closing. Um, and so the idea was, okay, well, we could still keep talking to high net worths and probably get people to take, you know, 250 here and 100 there and we'd get two more and we're done. But what we started seeing, um, well, I started seeing, I think, Q4, Q3, Q4 last year, and I absolutely loved, were some of the product innovations coming out of AngelList. So in the US, I started to see rolling funds launch. I started to see, you know, people talk about supporting 
um, you know, more diversified GPs, um, people that don't come from your traditional, I guess, um, you know, pathway, uh, people that don't necessarily have the GP commit, people that don't necessarily want to do a drawdown schedule in the same way, people that might not have the track record but have phenomenal networks and insight, um, and just started realizing that the sort of fundraising for, for managers seemed to be changing and opening up a bit. At the same time, of course, on another end of a different spectrum, you have what happened with GameStop. You have, you know, the participation of retail investors coming into technology like never before. Um, and you saw even through 2020 and the pandemic that tech was not just resilient, right? It continued to, to really flourish. And so I think taking both of those factors into account, it just sort of seemed like actually there might be a chance to, to really open up and democratize what we thought of uh, as our LP base and make it available to everyday investors through Cedars. And actually, I talked to AngelList first, and I think there are regulatory reasons in terms of you know, us being in the UK and, and even still part of Europe at the time that I had that conversation about how, how we could do that. And then I simply said to Cedars, based here in the UK, who've been doing crowdfunding for so many years, um, you know, can you do something that's very similar to rolling, um, rolling funds? And actually, what I, you know, my fault, I didn't realize or appreciate, they've already raised for a couple of funds before, but in a slightly different way, where they kind of raised what's almost like a sidecar or a co-invest, which which they raise from underlying investors and then just agrees to invest in every investment that a fund manager might make, offering those underlying investors the same tax Exposure. relief. Just, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one thing they were doing. And then the other thing they were doing, and credit to Seedcamp, because Seedcamp being another great early stage fund here in London, for both their last fund and the fund before, so funds four and five, they had invited their founders to be LPs. But because those checks might be a little bit smaller and it's, uh, you know, I think it was 80 odd founders, they wanted them to come in through a nominee structure or basically one line as an LP, as a single LP. And so they used the Cedars platform to manage that as a sort of a back end, but not to market as such. So really what I ended up asking them to do and I thought was coming from, you know, Angelus was something they could already do, which is kind of combine those products a bit, do what they've done for Seedcamp, but also publicly market it. And for me, it was ideal because passion didn't need to necessarily market it, although obviously we helped to co-market it. But we didn't have to worry about the regulatory um, overhead because even though we are FCA regulated, of course, we were getting a commitment in effect from Cedars to be our LP. And then it was sort of you know, agnostic to us in terms of who Cedars was raising or where they were getting their capital from. And so from a regulatory point of view, in case people are interested in the technicalities, if anybody in the Cedars nominee had been more than 20%, we would then obviously have a responsibility to, to diligence them and KYC them. But to the extent that it was ended up being 700, 800 investors, um, you know, it was uh, it was totally open for us. And I was just glad for Cedars to get from as many as possible. Well, you blew through your numbers, right? I mean, you, I think the initial target was 350K pounds. And then you ended up, I think, saying, okay, we're going to do a million pounds. And then it was, oh, wait, we've raised two points. I think it was 2.6 million from over seven, 2.6 million pounds from over 700 investors. Yeah, we were absolutely blown away. I think the final number is just under 2.2 million, but we are absolutely blown away. And so you're right. What we opened with, with and I went to Cedars with, was 350,000 pounds. And now that sounds stupid, I realize. But we we did think of it as an experiment. And like I said, you know, I thought there was risk mitigation because if it didn't go, we would obviously still be able to shift it. And it was just an attempt to try and try sort of test the reaction. And also the 
investor minimum in size. I mean, just for, for those guests who are in the U.S. where right now only accredited investors and qualified purchaser investors, so investors with million or five million plus in net worth are able to invest in funds. And then there's investor limits with 3C7 and 3C1 funds in the U.S. It sounds like you don't have those same constraints in the U.K. where in the Cedars, in the Cedars investment vehicle, there are non-accredited investors who are investing hundreds of dollars into the passion fund, uh, and they'll get the same exact exposure that the British Business Bank or your ultra high net worth family offices or institutional LPs are getting. Yeah, exactly. So the minimum investment size was a hundred pounds. So anyone could invest with as little as a hundred. There were some people that pledged more than a hundred thousand um, as well. So there was just a range. Um, the the accreditations is different than the U.S. There's some accreditation required. So people did have to be certified as high net worth or sophisticated investors, as the kind of terms are here in the U.K. But it's definitely a lower threshold than what you've got in the U.S. for sure. Um, and so it does open up to what you know I would call everyday investors, non-technical term. But yeah, well, that first 350 is is what we had to offer. We then thought, listen, if if we end up getting a lot of interest. Maybe what we'll do is ask some of our existing LPs, who, by the way, have already had like 30% of their commitments drawn because we closed first in August 2019. But maybe if they'd shift a little bit just to make room, as in, you know, if they supported the concept and the idea, maybe they would shift a bit. And that's how we got to 2.175 at the end of the day. But I really wish we'd had more. I mean, when when people signed up and registered for information and to be notified for when the the campaign would actually open. This is, you know, of the people who had been KYC'd, I think 80 odd percent were KYC'd, but of these people in the two week pre-registration period, when they tick the box of the amount that they'd like to invest, you know, we had people pledging uh, the total, the aggregate was close to 30 million pounds which was obviously absolutely mind-blowing. You had 30 million of demand. So, so just so, so people can hear, your fund was is 35, 45 million pounds, and you had almost equivalent, equivalent amount worth of demand? Well, yes and no. But yes, because that's what the boxes people tick. But, you know, I mean, we take it with a grain of salt, right? Because people were just filling out the form to show interest. They didn't have to make a commitment at that time. They weren't necessarily all KYC'd. Like I said, I think about 80% were. But they, they ticked a box. And some people were probably just doing it just to get information, right? They just wanted to be nosy. They wanted to see the deck. They wanted to see how it went. And I'm sure there were lots of people that were just tourists. Um, and so, you know, to be fair, Cedars would say, because they obviously run this pre-reg for all their campaigns, they typically apply a conversion rate of up to 30%. So they assume more than half are just, you know, um, just ticking a box. But even if you take 30%, yeah, that's a, that's a nice chunky um, allocation. And so, yeah, we decided to try and get a bit more room from our existing LPs to try and accommodate as much as we could. On one hand, yes, there could have been tourists. But on the other hand, I think this shows just massive amounts of demand and interest in alternative assets and that people, when they have access unlocked for them, they really want this. And I think that this is a perfect example of showing that people really want access to these types of assets, whether it's funds, whether it's startups, other alternative assets. Does this give you a completely different view on fundraising for the future? I don't know if it's a completely different view, but we would absolutely expect, I think, to have a Cedars allocation for our fund four. You know, the, it's hard to know what the demand really could have been, because like I say, I think you've got to take the pledging amount with a massive, massive mountain of salt. But what ended up, we ended up closing 
because we hit our 2 million number within four hours. And so the campaign didn't even stay live for a full day. So, you know, I don't know what would have happened if we'd been open for a week, if we'd done a couple more, you know, webinars, Zoom calls, shared a few more bits of information. We shared very little information. We did very little engagement, um, you know, and so it, it really does you know, beg the question of how much we could have gotten. I think I'd like to think that for Fund 4, maybe there's a £5 million allocation, which, by the way, is, you know, uh, pretty representative of what an institutional LP might put into our size fund, which is about, you know, £50 million ish So, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. I think the only other thing I've been reflecting on is, you know, and, and you talk about this all the time, and this is why it's great to be on this podcast, because we're talking about access to alternative assets. I don't know now, and I don't mean to be chicken little or glass half empty, but I don't know how much of this is a function of a bull market, right? I think that it's really important to think through, like, obviously, right now, a lot of these alternative assets are, are just fantastic buys. They're great opportunities, and it's about the access and giving people exposure and the opportunity. And that's exactly like what we did. We, we wanted to give people access and exposure. If you're not in a bull market, if you're actually in a down market, I think it it comes across very differently, even to the everyday investors. They're probably wondering if you're trying to unload, you know, a bad asset, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think then the positioning is very different. I'm sure the demand profile is different. I'm sure the risk profile is different. Um, you know, I'd like to think that if you've got a track record and if you're a known quantity and you've got a strong brand, you'd still attract, obviously, um, the interest. But you know, I don't know if it's at the levels that we've seen, right? I think you're bring, you're bringing up a great point. I, I would push back on this and actually the, the, use passion as the example, which is, I, I don't think oftentimes the everyday investor has had access to the same quality of fund, certainly not funds. I mean, many, many investors have not been able to invest in funds and they are now able to invest into, in this case, a blue chip fund manager who is seeing the best deal flow at seed stage, has a great brand and reputation, has a track record. So I think that is in and of itself is unique. And the other piece too is, yes, through these platforms, people can invest into startups directly. And, and, and by proxy, they're investing alongside VC funds. However, you don't necessarily know whether or not those specific Companies will do well. Maybe you pick one or two, but but that's where I think the, the the crowdfunding or individual investor participation in this space is so interesting. Where it's you can pick single assets, and now some of these platforms like Angelus, they have an index fund, and and you can you can create structured products around this, which is good because at seed stage, which is where you're investing, I mean, people would probably be better off just investing in your fund than trying to pick single assets even from your portfolio because they may miss out on the one unicorn if they, if they didn't invest in Monzo or or Marshmallow or Tide or, or whatever you know whichever company ends up being a massive winner for you, then they would miss out on those massive gains. So being able to invest in a fund. And having a professional do that day to day with the structural advantages that you have as a fund manager embedded in the market, I think that that's a really unique piece. I guess the question then becomes, how did, a how did you go about educating these investors on how to think about this opportunity, both in the context of like why they should invest in a fund, what it means to be to be exposed to illiquid assets in their portfolio, and to and, and to your point, like yes, it's a bull market. And then how do you think about educating people longer term? Because I think that is such an important aspect of all of this when it comes to the alt space. Yeah, I think the education was really, really key. I think, you know, we ended up, we probably played it a different way instead of actually educating or over-educating, which I think we should have done if we had a bigger allocation and more time. We ended up just making sure we didn't 
overly market or even market very much at all. So uh, if people downloaded the deck, they'll see that it wasn't really a pitch. We, you know, made clear which uh, companies we invested in out of the new fund already. So that was the other thing is people were investing in a fund where we'd already made 11 investments. And so you can already see, you know, what what portfolio shape it's taking. Mm -hmm. Um, And they got to do that at cost. We didn't apply a markup to any of those investments, even though it had been sort of 18 months since the earliest. But we just showed what investments we'd made. And we obviously showed um, some of the value drivers in our existing funds. And that was it. We made it clear wherever we could that capital was at risk. Um, we definitely tried to make it clear that we were looking to appeal to people who exactly, as you say, might think about making individual investments in individual startups, you know, maybe 5K, 10K here and three different checks, maybe across the six month period. But maybe it's better for them to put a 10K check into a fund and you get exposure to the whole portfolio. So that's the kind of way we tried to characterize it. Um, we did leave the education piece to Cedars and they are very good about that, right? Whether it's for a company and a direct investment or a fund, uh, capital's at risk. And that is why it was only available to uh, you know certified high net worth and sophisticated investors. So it was, a, it was sort of a second level of uh, threshold or qualification that you needed um, different than investing in direct companies on Cedars. So um, there were a lot of people who sort of said, I didn't actually get the notification when the campaign went live. And it's because they hadn't sort of gone through that process of establishing themselves for that higher tier of access, I guess, or to to demonstrate that they were better informed and educated. So you bring up a really good point about the not investing in a blind pool, right? So you had 11 existing investments and investors could see that. Do you think that if you were to do another crowdfunding campaign in the future, or if if you were to share this kind of lessons learned with other VCs who were to do this in the future, is that how you'd structure it? Where for these investors who may not be necessarily, some may be very familiar with venture, but some may not be as familiar with venture. Do you think this is how you'd structure it, where it's not as much of a blind pool for these investors so they can actually see and feel what they're investing in? I think that would be ideal, but I actually think it's probably not practical. And my guess is, like, if we do Fund 4, for example, we'll probably look to raise it before we've made investments out of the fund. I suppose, you know, what fund managers do is sometimes they, they talk about example types of investments or deal flow that they've seen that they could have gotten into, or maybe deals that they've warehoused. So maybe it's not, you know, it's not dissimilar to that uh, when you're pitching to an institutional investor um, to sort of make that clear. But again, I hope the track record might speak for itself. We know from a few fund managers that reached out to us after they saw what we did um, that a couple of fund managers who are coming up on their final closings now want to actually do the same thing and open up um, to everyday investors. So I don't think they have investments that they've made, for example, but they also have really good reputations and good brands too. Oh, that's fascinating. So really this has spurred on a level of interest in the community of others wanting to do this as well. Yeah, no, we've made, I, I've made myself personally, I've made sort of three intros to the Cedars team for people who have reached out to me and I'm sure there are some that have gone directly to them. So I'm hoping there's a whole crop of uh, more to come. So is this kind of the crossing the chasm point where, because I, I think, you know, historically, Historically, there's always been some sort of view that in the past, many of these platforms were viewed as the platforms where either companies couldn't raise from VCs or funds that, that to your point earlier, I think like, you know, needed to raise money would go when they couldn't fill things from highly qualified institutional investors or in the case of companies, VCs. But 
you as an example, and then these other VCs who now want to do this. I mean, I think some companies in your portfolio, like Monza, which is a multi-billion-dollar company, Revolut did a crowdfunding campaign as well uh, on on I believe is on CrowdCube, and they all raised from the crowd. And investors be really happy. So, do you think this is that kind of moment where people have shifted in their mind how to think about these platforms that no longer raising from the crowd is is a negative signal? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think I don't know that this is the moment. I think it actually happened uh, a couple of years ago here in the UK. Um, but you're right, absolutely. When Cedars and Crowdcube first came to market here in the UK, there was a little bit of a stigma, or it felt like people thought there was selection bias, and that anyone who was crowdfunding was only doing it because maybe they couldn't raise from a VC. But that only lasted, you know, a year or so. I think. I mean, I, I and and I remember some of the most successful early crowdfunding campaigns here in the UK weren't actually tech companies; they were Camden Brewdog. They were brands that people started to, you know familiarize themselves with, or they kind of came across and they became household names. And that really made a massive difference, as did kind of the advertising for some of these campaigns. So Cedars and Crowdcube did fantastic, you know, jobs with above the line marketing. They would, um, you know, rent bus, you know, placements, they would rent placement in the tube. And so they did help to normalize and actually give credibility to the companies that were fundraising on the um, on crowd uh, funding platforms and I think so it's been a few years and certainly by the time Monzo did it um, it was definitely not seen as a oh they must not have, you know they must not be able to raise it all it was seen as a way to engage with customers so really made a lot of sense to consumer businesses and consumer propositions um, and for people you know brands that wanted to connect directly with stakeholders uh, at customers that could also be shareholders indirectly. So both Monzo and Revolut, I'm sure that was their, you know, their driver. Um, and it made it, it ended up being phenomenal for Monzo, right? Absolutely phenomenal. 36,000, I think it was, crowdfund investors that all got, you know, investor, you know, cards, debit cards and the whole thing. And it really sort of, it's, it's just like a, a team of evangelists, really. You get tens of thousands of evangelists that are singing your praises. And presumably they're all either customers because they invested or they were customers before they invested and, and, and wanted to be able to own a piece of that. But I think you're hitting on something that that is so important to talk about when it comes to the rise of alternative investments. And you're even, you're even wearing, wearing it with your shoe, you're wearing your Monzo sweatshirt today, um, and representing the brand. But, but you mentioned that, you know, initially it was people who wanted to invest into brands that they could associate with or had massive amount of love for. How do you think about that in the context of just investing in general? Because I think whether it's companies or even funds, like and, and fintechs are now brands too. They have Monzo has their own swag and people, I mean, I'm sure you feel really proud going out on the streets of London wearing Monzo, wearing a Monzo sweatshirt or having your pink coral Monzo card and, and using it to shop. So how do you think about the kind of the, the evolution of brands when it comes to investing? Yeah, I think it's a big I, I I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's more and more important. I think if people are thinking about where to put their money, where to invest, where to actually, um, you know, put their spending power, they want it to be with either an idea, a thesis, a vision, a movement, a brand that they actually feel an affinity towards and that they feel good about having done that action. Right. And so I think it's incredibly important. And and we saw from like the forum for our campaign, that people that were talking about passion or were keen, they they even if it wasn't a direct association with passion, they had taken an association with our brands or the companies we'd invested in, and so they felt that our brand was reflected in our portfolio, and therefore they thought that was compelling and an affinity for them. And I think it's incredibly important. I don't think 
people want to, you, you used the term, you know, so they don't want to blindly invest in an asset that somebody just tells them this asset's going to be worth something. It, they actually want to feel, you know, a real attachment to the brand or the movement or whatever that initiative is. And I think they want it to be relatable and meaningful. Um, and I, I'm sure that's part of the participation. So, so when are you going to open up the passion merch store? <laughs> I think we're past that. I don't know how attractive it would be. I think it probably come across as a bit too, I don't know. Passion is a word that now probably overused, but, um, I'd rather wear the merch from, from our companies. I think it's much better. Let, let, let you that You have an aggregated us. merch store of all, of all your companies and then people could buy, <laughs> that's buy all do. your company's merch. You're totally right. That's what we should do. Yeah. Uh, on, on the point about crowdfunding, though, like does does seeing what's happened here and then what you just said so eloquently about people wanting to invest into brands they can identify with, do you think that's going to change how companies think about fundraising and maybe they will now participate on crowdfunding platforms to open things up to their potential customers? I hope so. I, I think it's happening here in the UK. I see a lot of companies that fundraise for that reason. They want to engage with their customers. They want to sort of mobilize, you know, the sort of positive, um, you know, intention and, and the engagement that they get. So that's definitely happening here in the UK. And I hope that happens in the US as well. Um, I do think that, um, yeah, people want to really feel like they're a part of something. So it's not just a growth story, but it's a positive growth story. And they really want to see that um, where they invest, that they have a vested interest in, you know, more good things coming from something that they perceive to be a good asset. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, it'll be so fascinating to see how that kind of works in the, in the startup community, but also from these companies raising money. And I think that kind of segues into like the alt space more broadly. So we've obviously seen a lot of innovation in the US. We've seen a lot of innovation in the UK in both traditional alts and then things like digital collectibles with so rare and things like that. What, what, what's your view kind of on the ground? You're, you're the first European guest on the podcast, actually. Um, so what's your view on the ground of kind of the alt space in Europe and the future of the alt space? I think I'm probably Probably going to get ripped for saying this, but I think again, like when we were talking about sort of tech ecosystem more broadly, I think we're a little bit further behind the U.S. Um, I'm sure I know that there are people, you know, that are really, really, um, you know, aggressive and really, really interested, super bought in. But I think on the large, it's not it's not the same level as what you see in the U.S. I think what we're seeing with alternative assets is coming. What we're seeing first is things like alternative financing. Right. So there's been a lot of financing models. And of course, there's great ones, obviously, in North America as well, whether it's ClearBank or Pipe.com. But I think I dare say that we've had those um, for longer here in the UK than over there. And I, I think I've always thought that innovation in fintech or financial services was was first here in the UK, then went over to the US, whether it's crowdfunding or otherwise or neobanks, for example. But we've had, you know, We've got Uncapped, which is basically a clear bank equivalent here. We've got Sugar, which is uh, for games and apps developers. You're seeing Rail.com, which is basically a Pipe.com model. Um, I think alternative financing with market, um, you know, Invoice, which is now called Market Finance, and so many other platforms um, have really been, you know, where the UK and Europe have kind of led. And so I think when we talk about then other areas, whether it's NFTs or, you know, um, other types of assets, I think those are coming. But I think here, maybe it, maybe it works culturally that in the UK and Europe, you know, money talks first. So dealing with money in an alternative way or alternative access to money is going to come before any other kind of assets, whether they're fungible or not. Do you think that like the, particularly when it comes to the sports space, like we've seen 
huge interest in traditional and physical sports cards in the U.S. And that's because, you know, sports like basketball and football are incredible. American football are incredibly popular. I, I, I lived in the U.K. long enough to call English football football. Uh, but, but do you think that the fact that there's so much popularity around the game of football will spawn these really interesting startups at the intersection of sports, probably mainly football in, in the UK or Europe uh, and, and financial services or the financialization of all sorts of assets. I think that it should. I don't know that it will though, because I think the structure here is so different. So the way the rights um, here for the, for the English clubs and everything is super different. Um, and you know, by the time this podcast comes out or be, by the time people are listening, this will be like old news and they've probably resolved it. But, you know, even the overnight, <laughs> yeah, the European Super League. I mean, this is a big, big deal. This is absolutely massive that you've got 12 clubs who have said that they're going to break away and form a new league. And there's going to be, you know, 30 billion um, pounds to distribute and no one's going to get relegated. So it's going to be the same teams every year with five new ones that qualify. It's, it's crazy. But even before that, the rights for the data that came out of games, came out of matches, means that fantasy football and those types of opportunities came here later than they were in the States. And so I suspect um, because of these kinds of um, inherent, I guess, differences in the structures and the rights, basically management of a lot of this, it's going to be a while before we see it, but it absolutely should. There's no reason why it wouldn't. And I think that there will be interest to push it for sure. Do you think that there's some element of um, traditionally, and, and again, I'm, I'm going with general broad brush kind of generalizations here, but traditionally uh, UK and European investors have been more risk adverse than Americans who are more used to investing in stocks, gambling, all of those kind of things. Do you think that also creates a different mindset for how people view alts, whether it's traditional or, or uh, non-traditional alts? Yeah, completely. I, I think you're absolutely right. I do think culturally there's been a difference. I think that the gap or the difference between the two, the delta is probably smaller than it ever has been before, but there's still a delta for sure. And I do think that's part of the reason why it's a little bit slower here than we're seeing in the U.S., definitely. Well, that should be good from a, to, to go back to our earlier conversation, educational perspective, because it sounds like, I mean, the work that you did, I saw what you did in the Cedars campaign. I saw what Cedars did and, and how careful you were about talking about all of these things and, and always being incredibly careful to say, well, the returns could could be, but they may not be. Like I think that the education piece is so important when it comes to alts that it sounds like that may not be a bad thing if, if that's the, the mindset, the way that people kind of go about it. No, for sure. I think you're right. There's a great opportunity for education, like you say, to make sure that people are sort of brought along in a really responsible way. And I also think it points to kind of the reason that I'm doing investing here. There's so much more upside in this market now um, than there is in the U.S. Uh, as a as a comparator, for example. Well, so that brings us to where what's the future for passion and, and where, where do you go from here? That's a great question. I think if we can just manage to, you know, this is our 10-year anniversary. So we launched in 2011. Thank you. Um, if we can manage to keep backing fantastic founders, we're just taking a bet on their ambition and their ability to execute. I think that you know, it wasn't us who sort of said, oh, we see an opportunity for neobanks. And so therefore, let's go find a team that's going to do a great digital bank. It wasn't us who said, you know, oh, we think alternative finance makes a lot of sense for games and app developers. Let's go. You know, it's just comes by virtue of meeting these founders 
who have fantastic ideas and some, you know, every once in a while we get lucky enough where it resonates, it clicks with us. We sort of believe in these founders' abilities to get it done. If we can just keep doing that for the next 10 years, I don't have to predict what it's going to be. I just have to make sure I still keep meeting these fantastic founders. So just being right in the core of the ecosystem, like you, like you have been. So <laughs> if we can, if we can be so lucky. Yeah. 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 So I, I always end this podcast by asking everybody what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is and why. So what, what is, what is yours? Oh, amazing. Um, I'm so uncreative and I, I'm behind. I'm part of the European culture now, Michael. I don't know that I've got a favorite one. I'm still, you know, I'm still really happy with my Bitcoin ownership. I haven't diversified from that very much. Um, you know, I'm looking at new sort of opportunities to, to sort of spread out on that side, but I haven't actually got into NFTs and somebody that I would really respect was talking about that a couple of weeks ago. So that's probably where I'm going to look next, but I don't have an existing favorite. I think it's still to come. You are an Arsenal supporter, right? So maybe maybe we're going to start seeing some some purchases of some uh, of some Arsenal players on on so rare. We got to get them out of that Super League first, and then <laughs> yes. maybe yeah. Yes. Oh, so you're so you're so you're against the Super League. I'm against the Super League. I think I think it's pretty poor. I think it's really bad. Yeah, it's very anti competition. It's anti-competition and anti-community too, right? I mean, I think teams, yes, they're about money at, at this day and age, but. They're also about the community and football runs so deep in the community in many of these, many of these towns and not just the, the big clubs, right. But like, what about the smaller clubs all over the UK where they, they, they thrive on making it to the FA cup or making get, getting promoted to the premiership. Uh, I mean, if, if they were not a massive club, right. So, so, and that, that I think actually ties in with the alternative investments piece, which is really at, at its core, to some extent, it's about community. Right. And how, yep. and how and, you, and sort of, how you involve the community. So maybe, maybe your, your next investment can be buying, buying Arsenal out so that you can, you can <laughs> run the club in a way that, that, uh, that aligns with the, with the community. We got to get a couple more, get a few more Monzos or I don't know, wise transfer wise back in the portfolio before that happens. But yeah, you're right. It's all about democratizing access, right. And the community, it's a hundred percent the same. Well, I have no doubt that you will, will will be will be on that track. So, so once you get a few more Monzos and Wises, then then uh, I'll look forward to seeing you buy Arsenal out. Okay, deal. That's a deal. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Eileen. This was fantastic. No, thank you for having me. Had a lot of fun. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going main-